close to 120 people signed up for this class. So I'm sure more are going to be trickling in tonight along the way. Uh, but this room is going to reflect really a hunger for truth in a culture of lies. And I know that this is a, a subject that cuts pretty deep for a lot of people, whether it is in marriage or in raising kids, is not easy. It's uh, a battleground at times, literally, metaphorically, whatever you want to think. It, it's, it's difficult. It's hard work. And so here we are. Two for two. What does two for two mean? It's a reference to Acts 242. If you got my email yesterday, you would have seen that. Uh, Acts 242, uh, where the early church, the, really the beginning church, was described as devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, I'm not an apostle, but we have the apostles' teaching in the scriptures, and that's what we're going to be turning to for truth, because they were teaching what Jesus taught them, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the source of truth. So we're going to be going to the Word through the next few weeks, and we are going to be seeking truth when it comes to marriage and family matters. The foundational institution of any society is the family. We need to understand just how important this is. It's necessary to link uh, it, it's the necessary link, pardon me, for economics, social matters, morality, spirituality. It is the basic structure of any nation. All these people running around today talking about economic justice. Have you heard that term? Here's where it should start. It should start by keeping the family intact. That would be a major overhaul of the economic system for Western society if families just stayed together. The family is the basic unit, and as the family unit falls apart, the nation falls apart, and we're seeing that happen right before our eyes. We're feeling the effects of a relentless assault on marriage and the family. It's imp impacted the church. Maybe you're aware of that. It's impacted many in the Christian community. The impact is, the attack, pardon me, is primarily spiritual. We have a lot of responsibility in this, but it's a spiritual attack. We like to blame other factors like culture and society and public schools and all that. And that's true, but there is a spiritual element. There's a spiritual enemy behind all of that. Satan is behind it all. We need to be aware of this. All right, so this course is going to cover six different topics over seven weeks. Seven weeks because the third week we have off. Uh, there's another class going on in here uh, in three weeks' time. So we'll do session one, session two, then a week off, and then follow on with the other five. Uh, we're going to be looking at focus tonight, vertical focus, restoring vertical focus. You say, what's that? Stay tuned. We're going to find out. We're going to look at restoring healthy communication next week, and then in three weeks three weeks, something like that. We're going to be looking at uh, meaningful intimacy. And then following that, we'll be looking at bold leadership and then faithful discipline. And then finally, family worship, right? So we're slowly going to be moving from marriage relationships and transitioning over into family matters and just kind of widening the lens a little bit. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then we're going to get into our subject matter tonight. 
Lord, we're thankful that you've provided us an opportunity like this to get together, to be around and in your word, under your word, really, under the authority of what you have to say to us. Lord, we just ask that we will hear from you tonight, that your voice would be clear, and that we would recognize the truth that you are seeking to teach us, that the Holy Spirit will be in this room tonight as the educator, as the one who is illuminating our minds to the truth of of your word and the power of your word. Convict us tonight, correct us, encourage us, comfort us. Lord, we need all of these things, and we ask this for the glory and honor of Jesus. Amen. All right, you might be wondering what these chairs are doing up here as well. I'm not going to be taking a nap or anything like that. Uh, So for the first half, we're going to have a lecture. And then for the last half, so that'll be about an hour, and then we'll do about 10-minute break, maybe shorter. Doesn't need to be longer than that. And uh, what we're going to do each night is for the last half, we're going to have a discussion going on, kind of a question and answer panel, uh, back and forth, testimonials, because I really am convinced that one of the ways that the church helps the church with relationships is through testimony and through experience. And so that's what we'll be doing for the last half each night as well. But tonight we are looking at restoring vertical focus in marriage and the family in the extended way. And you may be here for different reasons tonight. You may be single, not married, possibly dating, wanting to learn and prepare for what's coming, possible issues, possible things that you might have to face. And that's good. Good that you're here. You might be married without children, and you're here wanting help with improving your marriage relationship and preparing to raise a family if that's what God has in store for you. You might be here married with children, and you have all kinds of problems, don't you, right? All kinds of things that you might need help with. I do. I know that. I have both. Uh, You might be married to an unbeliever, or possibly someone who's not, who, who claims to be a believer but is not following Christ at this time. And it's what we would call an unequal yoke, in a sense. It's lopsided. You're pulling one direction and your partner's pulling another. And our goal in a few sessions is really to cut through all the surface and horizontal issues. We can't get into all the details of who said what and you know, you might need a counselor to get in the middle and be a referee and tell you cut that out and you say this more and so on and everyone goes on their merry way. We're not going to be doing any of that. We're going to cut through all the surface and horizontal issues, we'll get into explaining that in a minute, and expose the problem or get to the root of the issue. We might see the fruit on the tree, we might see that there's some damage. The fruit might be rotten in your marriage and in your home and in your family. That might be true, but we're not going to sit there and investigate the fruit on the tree. We're going to try and dig down and find out what's wrong with the root of the problem. And one major root problem, one major root issue is a lack of vertical focus in horizontal relationships. And we see this. We see this even in how people get into relationships for horizontal reasons. Horizontal reasons like they're escaping something. Maybe they're escaping a problematic family situation. Or they get into marriage relationships for social status. 
money. Or maybe it's the fear of being alone. Or self-worth. This other person is going to complete me, is going to give me value. It may be that we get married or get into a relationship because we want someone to take care of us or take care of our home and we want Mr. Fix-It, right, to be in the home. These are all horizontal reasons to get married, to get into relationships. People do this all the time. You might be able to look back at your marriage and how you met and why you got married or why you're dating even now and you might be able to recognize some of those horizontal reasons. Secondly, people avoid relationships for the very same reason. Our culture is actually so horizontal that even marriage itself now doesn't even require God to be witness anymore. We don't need God. We don't need God to define what marriage is for us. Uh, we're such a horizontal culture. Everything is surface now. Everything is ground level. There's no one up there. Nobody's listening. And so it's no surprise that people even avoid marriage now. We don't even need ma marriage. Why, why get married? What's the advantage to it? If there's no God watching, holding us accountable, what's the purpose? So people avoid marriage and children for horizontal reasons as well. Some people avoid relationships or marriage because they're looking for Mr. Perfect or Miss Perfect. They're looking for that soulmate, the special, the only one that's meant for me. Or they're set in their ways. I have my habits. I'm not giving up my lifestyle for anyone or anything. Or maybe they just don't want to be tied to one individual and want to hook up with anyone they can. We live in the hookup culture. Possibly chasing a career. Possibly afraid of responsibility, afraid of commitment, a fear of failure, and so on. But also, people want out of relationships for horizontal reasons. I don't want to be married anymore. Why? Well, you know, we just don't love each other. I'm just not feeling it anymore. Or possibly chasing a career. Or found my actual soulmate. I thought she was my soulmate, but I was wrong because we fight all the time. So this one is my soulmate. She gets me. Those are all, again, horizontal reasons to get out of relationships. It's too painful to stay. It hurts too much. Well, what is a vertical, a vertical marriage and family? What does it look like? What are we talking about? Well, we start with man and woman, and the relationship between the two is what we would consider, first of all, to be a horizontal relationship. Man likes woman, man chases woman, man wins woman's heart, they get married. That's a horizontal relationship. They relate to each other, they bounce things off of each other, they communicate, they give feedback and so on. And then enter these little critters, little monsters, maybe we call them, I don't know. And again, we have Father relating with children, we have mother relating with children. These are all horizontal relationships. I don't know what to do. We're pulling out our hair. We don't know exactly what we're supposed to say, how we're supposed to discipline. 
where we're supposed to go, how loud we're supposed to yell or not yell, right? These are all horizontal matters, horizontal things. The problem is, in this picture, all we have are broken people. All we have are people that are bent in rebellion against, guess who? God. And so now we enter into another factor in this family. This family will never be right, will never relate with each other in a, in a beneficial way apart from a vertical relationship between father and God, between mother and God, between husband and God, wife and God, children and God. All of these in Scripture are all related back to the Lord. Children are told to obey their parents in the Lord, right? It's the vertical relationship that defines the horizontal, not the other way around. So vertical focus, what is it? Well, we're going to define it. Vertical focus exists when all other horizontal or human relationships are subordinate or underneath or in submission to one's relationship with the one true God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, you and I are born without relationship with God. We do not have a relationship with God when we're born. You cannot say, I was born a Christian or I've always been a Christian. That is not true. Psalm 51, David makes it very clear, in sin my mother conceived me. It didn't mean that the act of conceiving him was a sinful act. What it means is the moment of conception, at that moment of conception, David was born with a sin nature in him. There was a separation between him and God. That separation can only be mended, can only be reconciled through the cross of Jesus Christ. God sends Jesus, Jesus comes as God in the form of man, right? God becomes man, dwells among us, dies on a cross, pays for our sins, the punishment for our sins, is buried and rises again the third day. And through repenting and trusting in Him, that relationship, that vertical relationship with God is restored again. And all of a sudden, we have access to the one true and living God, and all other relationships, horizontal relationships, must be subordinate to that one vertical relationship. So here's a question for you, parents. Do your children know that you love God for far more than you love them? Do they know that? You say, whoa, that sounds kind of harsh. I don't know if that's a good thing. My kids would know that I love someone more than I love them. Actually, it's a very safe thing if they know that your relationship with God comes before your relationship with your kids. Does your wife, does your wife feel safe knowing that your primary relationship is walking with God first? Does she know that? Wives, does your husband know that your loyalty to God as your first love secures your faithfulness to him? Does he know that? There's nothing safer for a husband than knowing that his wife is in tune and walking with God. Makes all the difference. Listen to how Jesus described this in Luke 14. Verse 25, the great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not 
hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. That sounds like a very hard statement to take. Hate my father and mother? What is he talking about? Hate my wife and my children and brothers and sisters? Is he a homewrecker? Is he just looking to destroy the family? Is that what he's looking for? He wants me to go to my wife and my children and say, guys, I hate you and I'm following Jesus. Goodbye. Is that what he wants? No, what he is saying is if your love for me does not look so strong that every other horizontal love looks like hatred, you can't be my disciple. Those are strong words. Then he says, and, and he adds to it, and even his own life. Even your love for your own life, right? If it doesn't look like hatred compared to your love for Christ, you can't be his disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. We know this is true. You know what helicopter parents are, don't you? They hover over their kids, over everything they do, where they are at all times, and it never seems to let up even as they're becoming adults. We still have to be in their space with everything and everywhere. And you see as they become teenagers, like, Mom, please, would you stop? Like, let me have... You know, or lawnmower parents, what do lawnmower parents do? They're just paving the way, they're just clearing the pathway, don't want their kids to ever fall or trip up or feel any kind of pain or face any kind of challenge. Why? Well, it's ultimately a result of putting that horizontal relationship ahead of your vertical relationship with God. After all, if my identity as a father rides on the success of my kids, if that's most important to me, then I'm going to do everything I can to pave the way for them. What do you need? What do you need to succeed? I'll get it for you. Whatever it is, right? And we become slaves to our kids. Or if my value or status or and so on, it could be in our marriages as well, right? And we begin to idolize these things. If they come from our spouse or our kids, we have put the horizontal relationship first, and the vertical relationship with God is after that. And you can kind of see that. You can see that in just the way you respond to things. Like when your kids mess up, is it the end of the world for you? Or when things aren't going well in the marriage, is it the end of the world for you? Like if your spouse isn't talking to you right now or is upset with you, ah, oh, my, my identity is challenged, it's damaged, I don't know what I'll do, right? If that doesn't come from God first, we're in a lot of trouble. And people are so laser focused on their horizontal issues, they forget to look up and ask what God in his sovereign rule has to do with any of it. So we're going to step back from our natural instincts. We're going to dig into God's word as though our life depended on it, and it does. And we're going to respond and put into action what God reveals. And when that happens, we can restore the vertical family one family at a time. That's what we can do. And that is the prayer for these sessions. That's what we're looking to do. Well, let's get into just a, a little deeper detail about what vertical relationships are. And first of all, they are about more than you. That's clear. 
It is about the glory of God. It is about reflecting God. We'll get into that, but immediately we're confronted with two very harsh realities if we've never faced these before. First of all, the culture has had too much influence in how we contribute to our own relationships, whether it's our relationship in marriage or our relationships with our kids. We have let the culture disciple us, whether it's through movies, TV shows, school, um, news, the media, talk shows, Whatever it is, the culture has had way too much influence, and the Bible has not had enough. And secondly, my marriage and family relationships are about more than me. Here's what this course is not designed to do. This course is not designed to fix all of your problems. Everyone living in a broken world has problems. Those problems are not going to go away. You're still going to live in a broken world after these sessions are done We're all going to go back to our broken lives and our broken selves. All of that is true, and there's no guarantee your problems will go away. In fact, I would go the other direction and say it's guaranteed your problems will remain. They will through life. Because we live in a world that is broken by our rebellion. That's not going to change. But this course is designed to restructure our perspective of our problems. How we see them, how we respond to them, with a God focus, right? With a vertical focus. What we want to do tonight is get back to why God created marriage and family in the first place. What was his purpose? And does his purpose for our marriage line up with our purpose? Does his purpose for our relationship, if we're dating, if we're engaged to be married and expecting to get married soon or about to have children or have children, is his purpose for those things our purpose for those things? So I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, and if you have your Bible, you're going to want to turn to Genesis 1, and we're going to get, first of all, in Genesis 1, a more overview summary of the order in which God made the earth, and the last thing that he made, the very pinnacle of his creation, was the man and the woman. They come at the end of the description. He starts with calling light into the darkness, and from there he separates things out, he rearranges things, and he makes all kinds of living creatures, and in the end it's it's obvious that he made it all for the man and the woman. They come at the end because they're the point of it all. He made the world for them. He made it for them so he could reveal himself to them in the world. So Genesis 1, 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, notice it's to the male and the female, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, cultivate it. Make it into something. That's where the word culture comes from, the idea of cultivating something, developing something. And you'll notice, by the way, just a side note, that that's exactly where the Bible ends the story. That in the end, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, the new heavenly city, what do we have? We have a city, okay, that is built or cultivated But in the middle of that city, what do we have? We have a garden. 
So God starts by making a garden and he puts man and woman in the garden and says, here, cultivate this, subdue it. Dominate over it. Have dominion over it. Control it. Make something. Build something beautiful out of it. And in the end, what do we have? We have a beautiful city and the garden is still there. So we have a garden and what is made out of the garden. It's a very, uh, very impressive narrative that the Bible creates for us, but that's the idea. It is the fulfillment of what God is commanding the male and female to do here. So do it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, and so on. I won't read the rest of that, but we get into Genesis chapter 2, and we begin the drama on the ground. It's kind of like watching a hockey game or any sports game, but you know in, in hockey when you're watching, you'll have the, as the play is moving up and down the ice, you'll have the wide-angle lens kind of back up top in the arena just watching from a bird's eye view what's going on in the ice. And the players kind of look like stick figures down there running or skating around. And then eventually, you know, when the play stops, you'll see cameras down at ice level kind of watching the interactions of the players and catching what they're saying and things like that, right? And the fists they're swinging and sticks they're swinging, things like that. And that's the idea of what's happening in Genesis 2. We begin the drama on the ground. We kind of go from that wide-angle bird's-eye view lens in chapter 1 down to what's happening on the ice in chapter 2. And we see the interaction between the players, God, man, woman, and so on. And in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But what did Adam find when he did all of that? He's naming the animals and their mates, animals and their mates, they all have a partner. But Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, no mate, no companion. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up, here's the first surgery ever done on planet earth, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she's like me. Every other animal had someone like them. So he wasn't he wasn't emphasizing her differences as much as he was emphasizing her similarities. She's like me. She's one of me. She's a people kind. Is that the word? I think. Sorry. Therefore, a man shall leave, she shall be called woman, pardon me, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That is the ideal picture of what marriage was intended to be. Marriage is not a cultural construct. It's central to God's design for society. It's actually integrated right into the fabric of the created universe. Just like any other natural law that observes how the world works, 
Marriage is the same. So to say that marriage is outdated or that the biblical definition of marriage is somehow outdated is like saying gravity is outdated or the way the, the earth spins around the sun in 365 days. That's outdated. We should probably change that. It's the same idea. God integrated this right into how humanity was going to interact on planet earth. We didn't make it up. We don't get to redefine it. And when things go wrong or get messy, we don't get to change the rules. That's not up to us. We don't get to decide for ourselves, this is what I'm going to do. Rather, in a vertical marriage, which we are refocusing on tonight, we submit to the creator of marriage. All right, so let's step back. Let's find out just a few ways in which God made marriage or a few reasons why God made marriage in the first place. That's what we're going to do. Vertical relationships are about more than you. Why did God purpose this in the first place? Was it just so I'd be happy? Was it just so I would be fulfilled or completed and so on? What is it all about? Well, first of all, in Genesis 2, we find out that it was made for companionship. We remind all of our pre-marriage couples here about many of these uh, before they get married to make sure that they are examining seriously why it is that they are entering into a holy covenant with another human being for life. Why are they doing it? Companionship. The Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. Malachi 2, right at the end of the Old Testament just in a way of summarizing what has happened with this nation of Israel. They had so many blessings and they lost it all. They blew it. What happened to them? Well, one of the things Malachi says right at the end of the Old Testament, he says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You know, one of the first aspects to go in a marriage is a couple stops being friends and they start drifting apart. Or some couples didn't even get married because they were friends. It was more of a lust thing going on, right? It's like we couldn't keep our hands off each other. We just had to get married because we were just so irresistible. I don't know. I think that's slightly arrogant to think that you're so irresistible. <laughs> We just couldn't control ourselves, kind of thing. Yeah, but were you friends? Well, not really. I mean, we were just really attracted to each other. Yeah. Maintaining focus, a vertical focus, is going to require cultivating a horizontal friendship with your spouse. Is your spouse your best friend? Companionship. God made it for companionship. Secondly, to complement each other. It's what we call being complementarian, which is just a big long way of saying two people that complete each other by, you know, one's weaknesses are made up by the other's strengths. God made us this way. In fact, in, again in verse 18 of Genesis 2, he said, I, God said, I will make him a helper fit for him. You say, I don't like the word helper. It sounds like you know, the, the aid, the, the maid, the support, the help, that kind of idea. But that's not true. It's actually a, a title that God used for himself. 
multiple times, many times over. Psalm 115.9, the psalmist says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So God used the same title for helper, same Hebrew word that he used for the wife that he brought to Adam, he used for himself. It's a title for God. In other words, God comes alongside us. Why do we pray? Why do we ask God for things? Because God loves to help his people. He loves to. He joys. He delights in it. It's part of how he reveals his glory to us. That's incredible. He made a helper for Adam because Adam wasn't going to cut it on his own. And every husband in this room knows that's true, whether you admit it or not, and whether you want to ask for directions or not, right? You know it's true. And Satan has attacked this beautiful purpose in God-designed marriage, making women believe they can do everything a man can do. That's got to be an awfully stressful way to live. I can do everything a man can do, except that you weren't made to do everything that a man can do. Even swim in male competitions, not a great idea, right? Uh, just a cultural example of that. But also making men, Satan has made men to believe they are no longer needed or wanted in the home. And so we have a pandemic of fatherless children as a result of men who are totally confused about what it means to be strong and what it means to be a man. Maintaining vertical focus is going to require celebrating the differences between male and female, celebrating what my wife can do that I cannot do and what your husband can do that you cannot do and the different roles that that takes that are designed by God. Third, having children. Again, Genesis 1.28, we read it. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Making children. It's a great little hobby to take up if you're married. And raising children, a little more difficult of a hobby. It's another God-designed purpose under attack because guess what? It isn't about you. You didn't have kids so that they'd be a reflection of how awesome you are. That's not why you have them. And I know because I have... Uh, first-hand eyewitnesses to the fact that there are high school teachers in our public schools right now who are teaching kids, the next generation of little Canadians, teaching them, please do not have children. They'll just anchor you down, live your life for yourself, chase your career. Kids are a burden, they're a plague, and so on. These are the kinds of Marxist ideologies that are being taught in our schools. And I know it. No, God says be fruitful and multiply. Maintaining vertical focus is going to require serving the next generation. might not mean that you're able to have children. That's true. God might not have that in his purposes for you. But he certainly wants you to try. And if you can't have children, he wants you to focus on the next generation of children that may not be yours by blood, but they are yours in the family of God, and so on. We have been indebted to adults who have been such a positive influence in our own children's lives. And so making children, raising children, is a priority in God's design for marriage. That's what he wants. 
Next, number four, to collaborate. Collaborative ministry. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. That's what God told man and woman. He told them both, commissioned them as co-managers of what God had created. The New Testament example of a mission-focused couple would be Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know why her name is mentioned first all the time. Um, she seems to be one that maybe it's personality-based, I don't know. Um, and it doesn't matter. The, the two of them were partners together in everything they did. They're always mentioned together. It's wonderful. Uh, they were fellow workers of Paul. Paul was indebted to this couple. He talks about them in Romans 16. And he's writing to the Roman church, and he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. They risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that is in their house. So they're fellow workers with Paul. They're willing to take risks in ministry with Paul. They risked their necks. That means they were going to lay down their very lives for him. And they opened their home to the church. They had a church that met in their home. We would also read in Acts 18 about when Paul met them in Corinth that they were tent makers together, so they actually ran and operated a business together. They were business partners, and Paul came alongside, and he partnered with them in tent making for a while as well. These two were very busy and very mission-focused people, and that makes a huge difference in your marriage. If you're mission-focused, if you're on track, you know what you're alive for, you know what your marriage exists for, we do give homework to pre-marriage couples to say, listen, we want you to write out what your mission statement for your marriage is going to be. So I'll tell you, it changes the way you argue with each other when big problems are really not that big of a problem because, well, we are on track, we're on mission. I'm sure Prisca and Aquila, I wonder what their fights were like when they're just focused on advancing the kingdom of God. I don't like the way you said that to me, right? At some point they're going to be like, let's move on. We have eternal things on the horizon here. They had a vertical focus, a vertical purpose in their collaborative ministry. They were teaching Apollos. They were discipling people. They were just busy all the time. Maintaining focus is going to mean staying on mission with God and with the church. Next is intimacy. We're going to spend an entire night talking about intimacy. Night number three is going to be about this, but in verse 24 of Genesis 2, therefore a man, God says, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That's a wonderful expression right there. And they shall become one flesh. And that's an even better expression right there. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, which is one of the most amazing statements in the Bible, right? Amen? All the brothers can say amen. Right? That's the ideal. That's the goal. That's what God created man and woman for. However, it's been broken because of sin entering the world. And now, and if we kept reading into Genesis chapter 3, we would have found out that after they took the fruit they weren't supposed to take, and what are they doing? They're hiding. They run off and start hiding or try to hide, but when God doesn't just catch up with them when he just says, hey, where are you? And they realize, oh, not hiding from God, he's everywhere. What does Adam do? He throws his wife under the bus immediately. There's a divide between husband and wife, immediately. 
I don't think they were going to be too intimate that night. Do you? I just don't think that was going to happen. Right? Intimacy was broken, and now we have a problem that we need to work through, and the gospel deals with our shame and redeems the intimacy that has been disrupted by sin. But that's the goal. Genesis 2 is the goal. That's what we need to get back to, not just naked physically, but naked emotionally and spiritually with each other, letting the guard down, the guard that is around our heart that we use to self-protect ourselves. That's what intimacy is. We're going to spend an entire night looking at that. Next, reflection. It is a reflection of what? Well, it is a reflection of God. Marriage is a reflection of God. Why did he design it this way? Well, he's reflecting himself. Okay, so God is three persons in one. That's the Trinity. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Three persons. They all have different roles. They are all diverse in those roles, but they are all perfectly united together in one essence, God. Say, try and explain that to me. I can't. Like A.W. Tozer once said, famous theologian, he said, if you can understand it, it's not God, right? Marriage, in a sense, reflects that. We have that in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul uses that idea of father and son and how God is the head of Christ to describe the headship roles in marriage of the husband being the head of the woman. So there's a reflection in marriage of the very character of God. That's true, but along with that, it is a reflection of God in the gospel. How do we know what God is like? How do we know who he is? What is the best way we can look at God? What is the best window we can look through to see this is who God is? He's righteous, he's holy, he judges and hates sin, he's loving, he's redeeming, and so on. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We look at the gospel. That's what we do. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul tries to teach husbands how to love their wives. What does he use? He uses gospel terms because Christian husbands are going to get gospel terms because they're in love with Jesus, because Jesus has rescued them from their sins. So he says, husbands, love your wives. How am I going to do that? I wonder what that means. As Christ, Paul says, loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ loved his people, the church, and he gave himself up sacrificially for the church, that he might sanctify her or set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, here he goes, quoting right back to Genesis 2. Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this. He says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, his relationship to, his love for the church. Your marriage is about more than you. When people in our culture look at your marriage, what do they see? Do they see a reflection of Jesus loving his people, the church? Do they see a relationship that is bound by covenant till death do us part? 
we're in this through thick and thin for better or worse? Is that what they see? Do they see a reflection of Jesus sacrificially giving himself to protect and wash his people, his bride? We are a reflection of the gospel. We are a reflection of all that God is. Bottom line, your marriage is about more than you. And we need to restore that focus. We need that focus renewed to us. Now, at this point, it might be that uh, if you've been married any length of time, I'm guessing many of you are hearing these original vertical purposes and thinking to yourself, if only. I mean, that's the ideal. That's what it's supposed to be. I mean, you went right back to Genesis 2. That's before the fall happened, before sin came into the world. You went way back there. If only. I'm guessing many of you are hearing these original vertical purposes and thinking, yeah, that's maybe true for other people, other good Christians, but it's not true for us. Maybe your spouse isn't a Christian. Maybe your spouse isn't following Christ. Maybe you're both not following Christ. Maybe you're both following Christ, but you're on different pages or different pathways and missions. You know, God doesn't press us down, and this is the beauty of the Bible, the beauty of the gospel. God doesn't press us down with ideals and, and you know, moral perfection and moral standards and not give us the tools to lift us up to them. That's what the gospel does. I don't have the power on my own to fix my marriage. I don't have the power on my own to fix myself. I don't. That's why Jesus had to come into the world to die on a cross to take care of that for me. He had to clean up my mess. And when I repented of sin and turned to Jesus Christ because I couldn't do it myself, and I put my trust in him, the Holy Spirit is what the Bible describes for us, moved inside of me and started rearranging the furniture for me, exposing things that were wrong in my life and starting to confront me with those things. And again, I realized, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, again, the Holy Spirit gives us the power, gives us the desire to do those things, gives us clarity as we read God's Word to follow and respond to God's word in obedience and serve him and do what he says, not because I believe that it's going to work out, but because God says so. I may not even know how it's going to work out, but God says it, so I'm going to do it. So what do you do now? Well, I want to look at just four vertical qualities in horizontal relationships. And by horizontal, yes, human relationships, and yes, relationships that are broken with sin and selfishness. It's true about all of us. Tonight, if you're here thinking, well, our, our relationship's pretty, pretty perfect, you're either lying to each other, you're lying to yourself. You're in a state of denial. I'm sorry, but there's no one, and you're denying the gospel, quite frankly, because what you're saying is you don't need Jesus. Well, you do need Jesus. I'm hopeless without him. If it weren't for Christ in my life, I'm as selfish as they come. I, I heard someone recently tell me, you know, I was counseled by some Christians that I need to trust myself more. I was like, no! You need to trust yourself less, like not at all. 
The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's God's diagnosis of your heart. Scripture also says in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. We walk around saying, oh, you know, we're doing well. We're wonderful. Everything is glorious. We've never had a fight. If you've never had a fight, there's got to be something you're hiding from each other. They're just, you can't have two sinful creatures in the same room for long enough without something clashing. Something's going to happen. Anyways, we need vertical qualities in horizontal relationships. Are you willing to repent and focus on your contribution to your own relationships? I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Well, that's something we have to consider. Are you willing to live in obedience to Christ before everything else, even if you are not rewarded in this lifetime. Yeah, again, these sessions make no promises of fixing your problems, but are you willing to live in obedience to Christ even if it doesn't get better for the rest of your life, just because he's worthy of your praise and your obedience? Are you willing to do that? That's a challenge. Are you willing to hand your relationships, your relationships your relationship, whether it's with your husband, wife, or your children, over to God and trust Him to do His work. Greatest revelation of my marriage for me was when I realized I'm not my wife's Holy Spirit. It's not my job to convict her of sin. And any time I've tried, it doesn't go well. Are you willing to hand over your relationship to God, trust him to do his work in you, your spouse, and your kids? Are you willing to do that? If you are, here are some characteristics that will mark your steps forward. The first one is repentance and humility. It's easy to see the faults and negative contributions of the other. It's more difficult to own our own sin. Don't come here to fix your spouse or your kids. You've got enough sin to focus on. So there will be things, if there are wives in the room, there will be commands given by God in Scripture and maybe from here towards your husbands. And you're going to have this reaction, this little instinct, right? You're going to have to restrain yourself and say, nope, that's for him to deal with in front of God. I'm going to pray for him, but I'm here to focus on what God has to say to me. Now, that doesn't mean we don't minister to our spouses and our children. We'll look at that as we move through this. But listen, James tells us in James 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble, humble pardon me, yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There were a lot of times in different churches in the New Testament that people were fighting. 1 Corinthians was written to a church in Corinth uh, that was in that state. 
And the truth is, as long as we're pointing fingers at everyone around us, we're never going to fix anything. But when God's word starts to penetrate my heart, things start to rearrange. I know that's what happened in our marriage, and I don't know if we'll hear any of that later on or through the sessions, but uh, over time, I know for me personally, there was a time when I thought these problems are all my wife's, and then God started to deal with me and point out to me, no, these problems are mine to own and to face up to. Changed everything. And the wonderful thing was God was doing the same thing to both of us. Secondly, uh, along with repentance, is forgiveness. Now, here's the other-centered attitude. Ephesians 4, 31, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. By the way, what did he base that command on? Well, if you go back and read from Ephesians chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4, you're going to find out that what he used to enforce these commands was the gospel. We don't graduate from that. Based on what God has done for us in Jesus, go and do this. Don't let any bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor or slander be in you at all, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Now apply this to your marriage. Apply this even to your parenting. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Is your heart tender towards your spouse right now, or is it hard? Hard as a rock. Paul says, forgiving one another. How do we do that? What does that look like? He says, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you a measurement for that. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we're going to forgive each other, not because the other deserves my forgiveness, but because First of all, God has forgiven me. How did he do that? He didn't overlook or ignore my sin. He actually confronted my sin on Jesus. He punished Jesus for my sin. He forgave me in Christ. That's how it works. So when I forgive my spouse, it's not because they deserve it. They don't forgive me because I deserve it. They do it based on the fact that God in Christ has forgiven sin. There's forgiveness in the cross. And there's always going to be. Listen, Dan Allender wrote uh, that for every person in every instance, either brief or interminable, cruel or civil, warm or hostile, there will be enough sin in all our relationships that forgiveness is required if they are to continue toward an end that is good. You cannot be in a horizontal relationship without needing the vertical quality of forgiveness. You can't be. So the idea, we've never had a fight. We've never had a reason to forgive each other. <laughs> Not true. Maybe you need to have a little deeper talk and be a little more honest. Next is bold love. I call it bold love because we're not talking about the same kind of love that the culture talks about. We're talking about a love that confronts sin and does so not for our own personal interest but for the interest of the other. That's what bold love is. And it's going to confront it at our own expense. That's difficult to do. We'd rather ignore things because it's safer for us. It's less painful for us. Uh, we're not taking the Band-Aid off. We're just going to let the wound sit there covered up, even though it's festering and gross. 
right? But bold love takes the band-aid off, it rips it off, it opens the wound so that the wound can be truly healed. We have confused in our culture love with acceptance. To love you means I have to accept everything you're doing. No, I don't. That's not love. Bold love says, I'm not going to accept your infidelity. I'm not going to accept that. We have confused love with apathy. Do you know apathy is actually the opposite of love? Anger is not the opposite of love. I can be loving and angry at the same time. If someone I love is stuck in an addiction of some kind, I'm going to be angry because I love them. I don't want to see them in that state. That's why when God is angry, it's not the opposite of love. It's not like you can say, well, God can't be angry with sin because he's a loving God. That's exactly why he is angry with sin, is because he's a loving God. He doesn't want to see you stuck in that place. No, we've confused love with apathy. Oh, I don't care what you do. Yeah, kids, you want the car Friday night? You want to go out? I don't care if you drink and drive. I, don't, I could care less because I love you. That's what our culture is trying to say. No, no, just be happy all the time. Be a church that is a loving church. We don't care if you're sinning. We don't care if you're doing things that are going to cause you to see judgment someday. We don't care. We just want to welcome you in and smile and have a good time. We've confused love with apathy. We've also confused love with agreement. I have to agree with you. If I love you, I have to agree with you on everything that you do. And that's the new definition of tolerance as well, right? Tolerance means I just have to agree with everything. I can't disagree with you. But you can't tolerate someone unless you disagree with them, right? If there's no difference, then there's no need for tolerance. I don't have to tolerate you if you're just like me and we see eye to eye on every single thing. No, see, 1 John 4, I love this. John is mixing this idea of love and God's love, and he says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And what did he do? He sent his son to be, key word, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, this kind of love is mixed with propitiation. Propitiation was a way of appeasing God's anger. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ to appease his own anger. So on the cross, the only way that God's righteous anger for our sin could be appeased and calmed was by him unleashing that anger on his son Jesus on the cross. That's what he did. And so now that anger is spent. The storm of God's anger is spent on Jesus. That's what propitiation means. And John says that's how God loved us. He spent his anger on Jesus and he turns towards us in grace, right? You get the idea? So we have God's anger and God's love in the same sentence. John is mixing the two together. This is the idea of bold love. A perfectly loving God is indeed angry with sin, and we ought to be as well. So if your spouse is sinning, there is a level of anger, and it should motivate us to confront sin, to pray for our spouse or our children or whoever it is, and to not accept, not accept sinful behavior that is poisoning the relationship. Uh, the fourth one, this is the last one, confident faith. That's the fourth vertical quality. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 a little bit more next week, but 
You'll notice the last thing that, uh, the last description Paul gives to the Corinthian church about love in verse 7 is he says, love bears all things. In other words, it carries every burden. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. In other words, it is motivated to endure to the end through this relationship. It's not going to give up on the relationship. God-powered love hopes in the gospel. Not because we think that somehow we can fix it, but because we believe that God, the God of resurrection, is able to resurrect our broken relationships for his own glory. God is working out his own program to redeem broken things. And that's why we can move into our relationships, whatever the issues are, with a confident faith that God is at work. If it's an unbelieving spouse, a confident faith that God is at work convicting your spouse of sin and bringing them to a knowledge of the truth and to repentance. Okay, so those are four vertical qualities. And I'm just going to take a quick moment with this idea of restoring vertical focus and entering now, being equipped with these things, and entering back into our relationships with this kind of focus that is Godward. I'm in this marriage, not merely for my own happiness, but because God is doing something in it. And I just want to say a few things about the idea of whether people should stay in a relationship or should go. One of the things that, and this is especially the case if you and your mar- in your marriage It's just shattered. Maybe your spouse is an unbeliever and so on. Paul has something to say to you through what he wrote to the Corinthians. He was actually talking to the rest, he said. I say, first of all, let me go back. To the married, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. In other words, if you do go... Do not get a divorce. Your focus is on the restoration of your marriage and your relationship. The husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say that if any brother, any Christian man, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and this is true the opposite way as well, uh, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So Paul is addressing people who've been saved their marriage is not a Christian marriage, and uh, one has been saved and one is still unsaved and unbeliever, not converted. What do you do in this case? And he's saying, stay where you've been planted. Stay where you are. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, verse 13, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife. doesn't mean he's saved. It just means that in her Christian ministry to her unbelieving husband, She is blessing him. She's benefiting him. I would hope that any man who saw a non-Christian, non-believing wife turn and be converted to a believing wife, I would think he would prefer the Christian wife over the non-Christian wife any day of the week. If she's following and submitted to Christ, it would certainly change much about her behavior. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, Paul says, as it were, they are holy or they are blessed as well. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I actually saw this recently. I saw a video of um, 
Billy Baldwin, Alec Baldwin's brother, who's not a believer, and his wife, China, who is a believer, um, talking about a fight they had had and where their marriage was at and how broken it was, and yet she was, in the course of this conversation, actually witnessing to him about the gospel and about coming to faith in Christ and so on. It was a fairly good uh, example of a wife who is sanctifying or blessing her unbelieving husband just by her Christian testimony of being in the house. Now, I want to give three things that are true in every relationship. If you're a Christian, maybe your spouse is not following Christ or is not even a believer in Christ, or the two of you are just on different roads, I want to give you three things that are vertically focused. The first one is you've been called to this. Stay because God is calling you. Not only that, he who called you is faithful. He will provide for you. Don't look at it, and and quite often we get into this mindset, we get tempted to believe, well, maybe this wasn't the one God really had for me. Maybe the one God really had for me is still out there. I made a mistake, but I'm going to fix that mistake by leaving this one and going after that one. No. The marriage you're in right now is the one God has called you to. It's a calling. Secondly, and that's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 7, secondly, you're being sanctified in your relationship. Stay because God is doing a work in you. In your relationship, he's exposing things in you. He's teaching you along the way. He's sanctifying you. Third, God is a God of resurrection. Stay because the gospel gives hope of restoration. Reasons to not stay? There are a few. If an unbelieving spouse decides to leave, Paul says you're free. That is true. Or if you and your dependents are in danger, whether it's through abuse or addictions and so on, you don't have to accept that. But I'm not saying that whether it is packing your bags, moving to your parents for a little while just to wake him up. I've seen this happen before where a guy's caught in adultery and his wife packed his bags, left him on the porch, and it woke him up. Whoa. Brought him to repentance. Made him realize the consequences of his sin. A wife that's saying, I'm not accepting this. You're not going to live in this house and behave this way. It's not happening. If there is persistent unrepentance. But all of that was done with the view to restoring the marriage, not just getting rid of it and moving on. Now, to, um, to marriages that might be just ordinary Christian marriages that have the day-to-day conflicts and the day-to-day problems and so on, I'm just going to give three things before we're going to take a short break and then we're going to get into a little discussion with another couple. Uh, three things, very quickly, I just want you to think about just in your daily Christian marriage. If you're going to restore vertical focus, what does it look like to take a horizontal marriage vertical? What is this going to look like? First of all, it's going to mean that you own your own identity in Christ. You're not going to be seeking for identity in the fact that your husband or your wife, depending on who you are, uh, is just happy with you all the time. That's not always going to be true or based on the mood of your husband or the mood of your wife, right? You're going to own your identity in Christ. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Own your identity in Christ. Be anchored to who you are as Christ sees you and defines you, as a son of the living God. 
That never changes, no matter what happens or what hurricane comes through your marriage and through your household. Secondly, don't let petty hurts sidetrack the mission. Right? Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete ex exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one, a one that's not going to be destroyed. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. If we're arguing all the time over petty things, we're so distracted with silly, silly nonsense in life. We are not focused on eternal things at all. But when you are focused on eternal things, like Paul running a race, he had a goal in mind, I want to receive a trophy from Jesus Christ, a trophy that is going to last forever. I want supreme joy that my marriage is never going to give me on this earth. It just isn't. I want supreme joy. He's focused on that. When that's the case, the petty things become minimal. They're minimized. We don't highlight them. We don't emphasize them. We don't spend time dwelling on them. We move on. We're focused on the mission. Third, and lastly, walk with God and each other. Peter had some marriage advice in 1 Peter 3, and he ended it with this statement, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And he was talking in the context of a husband who's not being nice to his wife. How should the wife respond? Or a wife who's not being nice to her husband. How should the husband respond? How should we suffer under injustice? That's what Peter is speaking into, that kind of thing. But as we walk with God, this is the whole idea, again, of a vertical focus. Every other relationship is subordinate to our relationship with God. And when that's true, we walk together. You've probably seen, the again, the, the triangle diagram. You know, you have the husband, the wife, or it could be the dad and the son or daughter, right? And the Lord, and the closer we are to the Lord, the closer we are to each other. That's the idea. This session is going to be focused on talking with another couple about what it looks like to have vertical focus in marriage. Um, these, these sessions are going to be more testimonial, um, just talking through some of the areas that we and other couples have uh, possibly faced or struggled with and found solutions to, or maybe not at all, I don't know, uh, over time. I did put up on the screens a phone number if you have any questions related to this topic of restoring vertically that focus of God in your marriage or in your relationships. If you have any questions related to that that you want to throw in here, I'm not promising we'll get to them, but we may, um, especially if they help the conversation as it's flowing already. So um, feel free to text in questions as well. Um, so tonight, so each night there will be a different couple with us, and tonight I have chosen a younger couple who I, Ange and I, have lots of respect for, but before we get to them, because, see, 
I believe that we are not just supposed to learn from people older than us. I also believe that we are supposed to learn from people younger than us. I learn a lot from my brother Blake and from Rach over the years. And quite frankly, the, the struggles that they might be facing or challenges they're facing in the early years of marriage are different than the struggles or challenges we might be facing in our stage of marriage. And I have quite frankly forgotten what those struggles look like. And as well, the culture has changed so much that they're living in a different world than we are at this phase in life. So how we responded to the world we lived in is gonna look very different than how they have responded to the world they are living in. Uh, with that being said, I, first of all, I wanna ask my wife, Angela, to um, just- Introduce myself. <laughs> well, I just introduced you, so I don't want you to introduce yourself, but maybe talk about uh, how long we've been married, how many kids we have, that kind of thing. Okay. How we met, and why on earth you ever chose me. <laughs> Uh, well, we have been married almost 22 years. It's gone by very quickly. Yes. Um, thank you. Um, we met at a Bible conference. The churches we were uh, at before did a lot of uh, conferences on weekends, and we met at a conference in Ohio. We had a lot of similar friends, but we didn't know each other, so we started off as friends, and it just slowly grew into... Romance. Yes. Um, we were married for almost five years before we had our first daughter. She is 17. And then four years later, we had our first son. He is 13. Then we have a 10-year-old son and an almost 7-year-old son. Three, Three boys. Yeah. Life is not boring. It is not boring. No, not at all. <laughs> Very good. Okay, uh, now Blake and Rachel Hill have joined us tonight, so I just want the two of you, I don't know who's going to start, but just maybe uh, I've introduced you again, but uh, share how long you've been married, you know, what you guys do for work, uh, and then we'll get into some of your history and how you met each other and that kind of thing. Uh, my name is Blake, as Andrew kind of <laughs> let you know, and I forgot to give Rachel the memo about the green shirts, so, <laughs> um, but next time, next time. Um, we've been married for just over three years, and um, it's been great, a great three <laughs> years. I'm thankful. Um, I have the privilege of serving here, so I work here full-time at the church, running the student ministries the middle school, high school, and young adults. Don't worry, they're not, the, the youth aren't running around by themselves right now. We have some competent leaders that are running middle school youth right now. So that's, that's kind of uh, my shtick and what I've been doing. Um, you wanna jump in? Yes, um, I'm Rachel, and um, I'm a teacher here in Windsor. I teach uh, grade six French immersion um, in the public board. So um, it's a bit of a mission field, but I do feel called to be there, and I my job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we met, we, we have different stories <laughs> of this. Mine is more flattering of myself, hers is less flattering of, of me. But my perspective is that I remembered who she was the first time we met. <laughs> and um, we met here at the church. Um, yeah. It's a good place can, to meet someone. You can, you can share your side, but... Uh, we met. We met here. Um, 
after Rachel moved over from a different church. Um, I saw how quickly she began serving, getting connected, and investing in others, and that really stuck out to me. I'm sure I'll share more about that as well, but um, you can feel free to share your... Yeah, I just remember my sister started coming probably to this church probably eight months before I did, and um, she quickly got plugged in, started serving in high school youth, and uh, so I would ask her questions about it, about high school youth, about where she's serving and her new church, and a few months later she started to say, yeah, there's somebody else who's taking over for Chris, um, there's like this new intern and we're not really sure what we think about him, he's just, he's not really like Chris, he's just different and like he likes Pokemon and stuff, and uh, I was like, okay, and um, a few months after that, I started coming to Harvest and um, we didn't meet right away. It's, it was a pretty big church, at least it seemed pretty big to me coming from a small church. And um, soon her tune started to change and she started saying, so the guy at high school youth, he's like really cool, you should um, come meet him. And uh, we ended up meeting at a young adults, it was like a Super Bowl party and um, we met there, didn't really think much of it. And then a few weeks later, he came up to me and introduced himself to me at church, and I was like, we've already met before, like this guy, because he's the youth intern, he must think he's so cool introducing himself to me twice. <laughs> so yeah, that was how we met, but we um, slowly became friends after that and ended up, um, I came on staff for about six weeks to help out with the kids camp, so we were interns at the same time, and, um, both served together in that camp, and that's kind of where things started for us. That's good. So looking back, um, what were some of the reasons that the two of you had, um, they might have been different, um, for, for getting married or getting into a relationship, first of all, and then for ultimately saying, yeah, this is going to lead to marriage? Do you want me to start? Yeah. Um, so I had only been in one relationship prior and it was a pretty long relationship. Um, but coming out of that, I kind of knew what was good in a relationship and what was not good. And just by seeing how Rachel lived, how she acted, um, her character, obviously I was very attracted to her, but it was more than that. She was a hard worker. So many things stuck out to me. I was like, man, for, like initially, I just thought I gotta I gotta do something because otherwise, someone else is gonna scoop her up and then I'm gonna be like, man, can't let that happen. So I'm uh, that that's maybe not the best reason initially, but so, I I saw her character and I I knew that that's someone that I will never regret um, having pursued. So I think that that was a big motivator for me. Um, Especially being on staff at the church, you kind of have to be wise with when you pursue someone. You can't just talk to a bunch of different girls because that would, one, be dumb for me, but also kind of give a bad impression of the church. So um, I, I think from a logistics standpoint, it made sense. Well, let, let me follow up on that. Yeah. So is it, is it true just for staff members or is that true across the board for well, I Christian mean, young people in general? I think there are... Everyone has friends at some point in their friend group. Maybe it's even currently still where you think, man, 
you need to cool down <laughs> because you are kind of building a reputation for yourself that's not one that is seen highly of. Yeah. And I did not want that to be me. And I knew that was not true of Rachel, and that was another thing that stood out to me for sure. Do you think that seeking God's will, like the vertical focus, helps with that instead of just chasing after the next individual you see kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, spending time praying, asking God to reveal, um, is this someone that mm -hmm. would be, it would be wise for me to pursue? Is this someone that sure. um, I could see myself with 40 years from now that I would be okay if they never changed? Um, obviously, you would hope they would, but if they, if they were where they are spiritually for the rest of their life, is this someone you could be with? And I, I, I saw that as a yes. Good. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts, Rach? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I, I actually wasn't really interested in marriage or getting into a relationship at the time. Just transitioning from another church and coming to this one was pretty difficult for me, mm -hmm. and I just wasn't really at a place where I wanted to even be married or was looking for mm -hmm. a relationship. Um, so I think it was Blake specifically that changed my mind in the way that God was working in my heart because I wasn't really like looking for somebody, but I saw his character. So my brother started coming to the church um, a few months after me and um, they didn't really know anybody here. And I just noticed how he would go up to them every Sunday and make them feel welcomed and invite them to his house every Sunday for lunch and the way his family welcomed us in and um, then working that camp together that I mentioned we kind of had that chance to do the collaborative ministry together and so I think we got a small taste during those six weeks of what it would be like to work for Christ together and so um, his character in that and watching him serve I knew that it would he would be a quality person um, to be in a relationship with, and I always felt like if I was in a relationship, it would be for the purpose of marriage. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, kind of touching on, sorry, that feels loud. No, no it's okay. just the, just, sorry. It's just when you <laughs> haven't done it before. Or, um, yeah. So you kind of mentioned you weren't looking at getting married first when you first came. Did you have any reasons that you wanted like you were avoiding it? Yes. Um, I mean, I think you guys can attest to that. You probably heard me say often that I was never getting married. I think I <laughs> told you guys that since I was like, very And we young. would roll our eyes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember whatever. you specifically laughing and saying like, ha ha, you say that now. Um, but I really did mean it at the time. Um, I come from a very traditional background and even as a really little girl, I was very um, stubborn and kind of had like that rebellious seed in my heart. And I didn't want to wear skirts. I didn't want to do household chores. I had four brothers. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be doing what they were doing. And as I grew up, I really had a distaste for the idea of submission. And I was very critical of the ways that I saw it modeled. And um, I felt pressure to just like get married and have kids and not really pursue a career, but I wanted to be a teacher and I, I wanted to pursue a career. So um, 
I think in in that rebellious seed, it kind of grew sure. into like, well, actually, I'm never getting married, and I'm gonna have a career, and um, I don't want to submit to anybody. Mm. Um, but it was, I would say, of course, God working in my heart. But it was a few specific couples that I can think of now where I saw the gospel on display in their marriage, and it really hit me. I remember like actually specific moments noticing things about those couples and thinking like, wow, actually maybe I do want that. Maybe that would be something that would be good for me. So you saw other married couples reflecting the gospel. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Blake? Did you have any reasons to avoid? Um, reasons to avoid marriage? I, I always, not always, but I graduating high school felt that I wanted to pursue a career or uh, a life goal that had purpose every day. That's kind of where I was at. So I looked into military, looked into police work, um, and then I went into um, one-year Bible college right out of high school looking into missions work. Um, so I, I did that. We did some cross-cultural missions work, and I came back and, and kind of felt like, eh, missions work isn't really for me. It just feels like the same as serving here, just in a different culture. And long story short, I ended up getting an opportunity here. Um, but I saw marriage as something that would kind of slow down my opportunities um, to reach other people. Um, I could, most, most people I knew that I looked up to were married, um, and they modeled it well but there was a few people that weren't married and you could see how effective they could be in ministry in areas they could reach by not being married. And I thought, man, it's, it just seems like people that are the most effective are not married. Um, and you hear stories of guys that do amazing work in ministry, um, but totally have failed their families. And kind of you see, man, like they probably shouldn't have gotten married or they should have prioritized their families. So that was maybe one factor that made me consider not being married. Um, but the companionship aspect and being able to be vulnerable with one person um, is, was really attractive to me. And I'm, I have no regrets whatsoever. Yeah. I'm, I'm very <laughs> thankful that um, I'm able to share everything with Rachel and that we have um, a communication when things are going well. <laughs> we, we communicate well. Um, so I, I guess I'm grateful that um, God has blessed me with this. Yeah, that's good. You brought up companionship. Um, and that kind of brings up the idea of your soulmate, the perfect one for you. Am I your soulmate? Would you say? Am I, am I like the... <laughs> The what? What would you say? I'm putting you completely on the spot here. <laughs> you are the one God had planned for me. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Nice. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, no, it's an interesting one because a lot of people get tempted by this idea of um, the soulmate, the perfect one, and so on. And when things start to go bad and get sour, you know, maybe I didn't marry the perfect one. Um, and and it's it's something that's not biblical. It's just not in the Bible that way. Um, 
Would the two of you say that, how would you look at that idea of your soulmate, the perfect person? Would you say, Rach, that you've married the perfect person? He fits, he fits you, you know, he just, he meets every need, he satisfies everything. And would, <laughs> um, I would say, like, when we were dating, no, I didn't know that. I mm -hmm. felt sure about Blake. I think it helped that I wasn't looking for a relationship, that when it kind of like surprised me, I was like very certain that I wanted to marry him, but I didn't know that he was my soulmate, but now that we are married and we've said our vows before the church, I would say yes, now we are, who um, God planned for each other to marry and there's no yeah. um, out now. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. I like the way you looked at him when you said that. <laughs> I mean, I'm the one who trapped her, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I don't believe there is such thing as a soulmate, one specific person in the world that is for you, but um, we have the same mission. We have... Um, I, I believe we're equally yoked. We're, we're both pursuing mm -hmm. further um, growth in our relationship with God, and we're on the same level there. And we have made vows with each other, and we've chosen to be soulmates, I guess, if you want to use that term. We've chosen to um, be married till death do us part. Um, so in that sense, you could say yes, but I, I, would, I would say there's, mm -hmm. there's no such thing as a soulmate. Like, there, God could have used a number of instances, but I'm, I'm so thankful that he's chosen this yep. um, scenario. Yeah. So. yeah, the lie in it is that, well, if you pick your soulmate, life's going to be easy, and everything's mm -hmm. just going to fit in place, and it doesn't work that way. That's why the gospel's the gospel and why we have to live out the gospel. Speaking of which, someone has texted in a question to follow up with Rach. Specifically, just digging down a little further, um, about what you saw modeled in Christian marriages that specifically attracted you to the idea of marriage. Can you give a specific example of that? Uh, yeah. Um, I would say I saw couples who I felt, I could see that they were, they really loved each other. Um, the challenge, I think, with um, when submission is like so heavily um, impressed on on a couple, it can sometimes go the opposite extreme, and um, it can create um, maybe unhealthy marriages. And so, I think it was like specifically the concept of of submission and headship hmm. that was what I struggled with. And when I saw that done properly, um, the husband being Christ and the wife being the church, and um, that being done the way that God designed it, mm -hmm. um, that's what kind of changed my mind. I saw that it could be done well and that it was actually better than um, that pride and that like stubbornness in my heart. Yeah. Um, and that it, it sanctifies. Yeah. yeah. Good. It's really yeah. good.
So what would the two of you say, like the purpose or the mission, like today is for your marriage, like on point? You want me to go? <laughs> um, I would say the overall mission of our marriage is to put the gospel on display, um, for sure. We both serve, um, Rachel, we both are where we spend most of our time during the week, her at school and me um, with different student ministries. We're around a lot of young people, influencing them. Um, and I think that the way that we act when we're not together and the way that we act together is um, when things are going well, when we're on track, is missionally to put the gospel on display, mm. is what I would yeah, and I'm really thankful that we were taught that in our premarital class, and those specific words were said by um, Pastor Aaron at our wedding before all of our witnesses, yeah. and so that was the tone that was kind of set from the beginning, and so I'm thankful that we were equipped in that way to know that that's the mission of our marriage, and that's the purpose for getting married, and I think... Uh, maybe a little more uniquely to us because of Blake's role in the church and we both serve at young adults. I think uh, we're mindful of it because we know there are younger generations watching us and um, maybe they're not all watching us, but uh, we're still mindful that um, that should be the center of our marriage and that's what we want younger people to see. That's good. Have you both faced challenges in three years? No, your marriage it's, it's easy. Yeah. Marriage is easy. That's what I said the first day I was married. I'll say it now. I'll say it 50 years. No, I'm just kidding. I hear this all the time, <laughs> and I have the same response every time yeah. he says it. No challenge. Easy. Right? You guys get it, right? <laughs> all the guys in the room are saying, yeah, it's easy. There's nothing to it. Um, but in keeping yeah. with that, with your challenges, does your mission focus in your marriage help when you do face challenges, whether it's conflict in your relationship or grief or confusion um, over where you're going, um, does your mission focus in marriage help with that? Absolutely. I'll, I'll let you go. I just want to say something quick. Um, when I'm not missionally focused, I find that's when I'm most frustrated or that's when I'm not patient or that's when I'm selfish. Um, like, Rachel is an amazing wife. She does a lot of great things for me. Mm -hmm. Like, just the way she was raised, I'm thankful that I've never made a lunch since I've been married. <laughs> like, that's, that, is, that has nothing to do with our mission. That has nothing to do with anything. But, like, that's awesome. Like, I'm, I'm blessed, right? Did you, did you so, do this, one? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, that's, that's a blessing in the day-to-day -day life, but it's not core, it's not crucial, and when I'm not focused on our mission, then I can be frustrated or angry if um, I have shifted the mission to what Rachel can do for me. Mm -hmm. While she does a lot for me, she's never going to do everything mm -hmm. for me, yeah. and if I swap that as the mission for our marriage, then I'm going to be yeah. angry. I'll we'll have issues, I'll be irritated more easily. Um, and then once we refocus, I found that that is when I'm reminded of, yeah, okay, I can be patient because if she does nothing for me, I still love her. I'm still choosing to, um, to put the gospel on display, yeah. really. So 
um, that's, that's one small area where uh, refocusing has been helpful. Yeah, um, yeah, you just made me sound really good, but I, <laughs> I do fail at this often, every day, I think. Um, but I think this is a good question for me to brag about Blake because I think that he does this very well. This has definitely been the most challenging year ever for me, probably. There's been a lot of loss, and um, uh, specifically, I lost two babies through miscarriage this year. And um, the grief has been seemingly unbearable. Um, but the way that Blake has served me and loved me through like helplessness and weakness and just feeling like completely broken, the way that he's um, like picked me up and wiped away my tears, that's, it's so Christ-like. Mm -hmm. um, it really reminds me of the way that Christ loves me and it really brings me to worship of God. So I think he does a really good job of putting the gospel on display and um, showing me how Christ loves me in my helplessness and broken, brokenness. Yeah. Thanks for having the courage to share that. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a reflection of the gospel, I think. Um, it's attractive, right? It's attractive when people look on and see that. So would the two of you say you've ever lost focus in your marriage? Oh yeah. Um, our, our personalities are very different and I think we complement each other really well that way when we are on focus, but then when we're off focus, that's, there's like major tension. So uh, one area I could say is I'm definitely a dreamer and I love to have big ideas and big goals and research things that will probably never happen and dream about it and talk about it. And Rachel's definitely more realistic, more frugal, more... Uh, the ball and chain. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. It's, we would be broke if I, we, if I pursued every, every uh, dream I had. So... When, we, when I lose focus, specifically to myself, when I lose focus, I can get caught up in, oh, we need this, we gotta, we gotta do this, and blah, 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 or this, this car is better, has this and this, and I can work on this, or we need a new project, etc. If When that becomes my focus, then um, life sucks. <laughs> uh, it sucks personally, because that's what's sucking up my time, that's what I'm focused on, I'm just selfish. And it also just kind of deteriorates our relationship because I'm not caring about her. I'm not focused on her. I'm focused on my own thing and the things that I want to pursue. So um, that's one area where I can lose focus. That um, a refocus and reminder that, okay, let's, like Philippians, let's look at the interest of others above your own um, and see what she needs or what she wants, um, which is usually nothing, which is frustrating, but, um, but yeah, so that, that refocus helps a lot. Yeah, for me, um, I think very early in 
our marriage. I was surprised that I think the distraction for me was actually um, other people and actually like loyalties that I had to other people, um, the way that I would listen to what other people had to say or advice that they would give me or who I chose to spend my time with. And um, I feel like there was almost like a leave and cleave issue exposed early in our marriage. And usually we, I mean, I think I was prepared to expect that from my parents, but um, it actually came from other people in my life. Um, and I didn't expect that, um, but there came a point where there was a, a conflict uh, with someone that I was very uh, loyal to and very close to, and I really let this person's opinion of me and words about me um, affect me and um, affect how I was functioning in the marriage, and I didn't, nothing that Blake could say would console me or comfort me, and I think it ultimately was God's conviction um, that made me realize that I was choosing other people over Blake and that um, I needed to make him a priority in my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that was something that we definitely wrestled with maybe in the first year or two of our marriage was different family issues. Um, I know mo most of you have probably been married longer than we have, and it might not be that big of a, an issue anymore, but I didn't, I didn't realize how... Um, hard it would be to navigate family, in-laws, um, etc., um, with how our our marriage and um, where kind of we're hearing teaching or voices who we're listening to. Um, that that was something that was probably big in the in the first year or two of our marriage was kind of navigating family um, issues. And we, we love each other's in-laws, like every, everything yeah. is good, but it's two families coming together and two mm -hmm. people that are raised completely different who are mm -hmm. now supposed to live together. And um, it's easy to maybe forget that when you've been married for a while, but it is definitely a big challenge when you first get married, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Have, have, have we struggled with this recently? Just with losing focus or keeping focus? What's one way that we've learned how to deal with this issue? Yeah, definitely. I think the stage of life, um, each stage is going to bring different challenges. Um, I think the stage where we are with our kids um, and just everything that's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think we've put into practice better recently um, has been prioritizing time with the Lord, um, prioritizing time with each other, even, uh, so just for example, um, we, we get up early, and I do not like getting up early, but we get up early, we read separately, um, and then pray together in the morning. I wish we had done that earlier in our marriage. It just helps us to, even for that day in that moment when life threatens to crowd in and get us off focus, yeah. off mission. Um, so that, I know, I would say in the last, especially in the last little while, has been a huge blessing and help in that for me. Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I didn't say that earlier, but <laughs> one of the central 
aspects of a vertical focus in marriage is praying together, right? Um, if you're going to walk with God together. And I didn't realize just how meaningful that was to you as a wife um, and a mother and how safe that makes you feel to be prayed for and prayed over like that. So, Yeah, and it's easy even in ministry to lose focus, to lose focus on your family, your marriage, everything else, everything's going on around you and you're not connecting with each other, you're not spending quality time together. And it can be a disaster. So of the, the uh, vertical reasons for marriage that I mentioned tonight, Genesis 2, Genesis 1, you know, companionship, complementarianism, children, and so on, um, <clears throat> which ones would you say have been most valuable to you, God's purposes for marriage, um, that you would say have been most valued, valuable to you in the three years you've been together? Yeah, I think uh, the companionship that you mentioned is a big one. Um, we're, we're definitely opposites in a lot of ways, which is why the soulmate thing doesn't really work out because we're very different, but we are best friends and it's really easy to spend time together and we really enjoy our time together. Um, and I would definitely say the reflection um, one that you mentioned for reasons I kind of already said, yes. how um, the verse you mentioned about how love bears all things, yeah. believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think that Blake does that for me. He's currently doing that for me every day. And um, it just shows me how Christ does that for us, despite um, living in a sinful, broken world. and. Um, the ways that we sin. Mm -hmm. I want to follow up on that and just ask Blake real quickly, um, putting you on the spot now. Yeah. What gives you the strength to do that, to love your wife like Christ? What would you say? Oh, I just pull up my bootstraps. You do, <laughs> no. Your own efforts, right? <laughs> yeah, just it's within. No. <laughs> um, um, sometimes I don't have the strength to do that. And I think a verse that I've been... I'm trying to put together a list of verses I want to memorize because I'm starting to realize the importance of memorizing scripture more and more. Um, but Luke 9.23, um, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And I know he says it again in Matthew, but the, this, the verse in, in Luke I really like because it talks about the daily taking up your cross, the daily dying to the flesh, and um, being unified with Christ, and that's, that's really it. And I, I, I think I'm, I'm very blessed to be in the role that I am here at the church because I could only really go a day or two of being distracted before I, re I get a really big slap in the face of, you, you are not gonna write a good sermon for small group, for middle school youth, or for high school youth, or for young adults. It's not gonna turn out well, or the event will just go poorly if I'm just trying to go through the motions, if I'm just want to have a lazy day or whatever. So I'm, thankfully I'm forced into the Word of God yeah. and that really is what gives me a, a proper focus and um, reminds me to take up my cross. So, I mean, Rachel's making me sound, sound great. There's, a, there's obviously um, 
many, many times where I've failed, as many probably as there are where I've, I've done well, but it's not my powers. Yes. It's in, in the cross. That's good. And you brought up another one, not just prayer, but Andrew said it and Blake said it as well. You can't, I don't know how a Christian survives without being in the Word every day. Like, you're going to live on your own strength, and that's just going to spiral, right? And I think you brought that out really well, that you wouldn't be able to function this way if it weren't for God's Word and His power in your life. So. And which, uh, I don't think you mentioned them yet, which vertical reasons mean the most to you? Right like, now? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, companionship, I may have mentioned that. Companionship is a big one. Um, the, what was the one right before reflection? Uh, intimacy? Intimacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> of course. You're a guy. I, yeah. I get it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Have they changed? I guess when you said right now, it made me, made me think. Have, has your appreciation for different reasons God instituted marriage changed over three years? Um. Yeah, I, I think mentally I, we've always, or I've always been taught or I've always known that it's to reflect the gospel, to be a reflection of the gospel. So that one is easy, like off the top of the head, but um, I guess I didn't realize the friendship, companionship level um, that would be available. You know, like, I mean, just as a guy who yeah. has never been married before, like you, your best friends are just guys. Yes. You don't have best friends that are girls. It's kind of weird, or it's mm-hmm. someone that you are hoping to marry. Yep. So you're usually most honest or most vulnerable with another guy, a friend. Um, mm-hmm. But to have a best friend that's a girl is, is new to me. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool, but it's, it's hard, but it's, it's good. Okay, last question from me for you guys. So you're a young couple. You lead and serve in young adults. What would you say to young people considering marriage or couples just starting out in marriage? Do you have advice, things that you've learned? I would say don't waste your, tra- your time trying to find like the most mm-hmm. compatible, most attractive person. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think, when you have the vertical mindset, you recognize that Christ could come back at any moment. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just not worth it to invest in um, something that doesn't advance the kingdom. And so if it's about lust or it's an unequal yoke, um, it's a waste of time. And if you want to know what to look for, in my opinion, I think you should look for, maybe this is for for everyone, but maybe specifically for um, young women, look for conviction. That's what um, made me notice Blake. Um, I always appreciate it. I, I said that we were friends before we started dating, and what I what stood out to me about Blake and um, what I really liked about him is that he was very convicted. He, uh, his yes was his yes. His no was his no. Mm-hmm. Um, he said what was right and what was wrong. Um, I saw him go to his friends or even to me and say, I failed in this area, will you forgive me? I saw him repent before God and even when we were dating in regards to purity, he was like, this is the line, I don't want to cross this, um, I'm not, 
I don't want to go in this direction. And um, I think that's the kind of person that you can trust because you know they're being led by the Spirit. And yeah. when things go awry in your marriage, um, you can trust that God's going to convict them and that they're listening. Mm, that's good. Now, you've made him look really good tonight. <laughs> so I, I just have to ask, does he ever make you mad? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Every day she gets home and says, I don't want to be surrounded by another sixth grader. Just give me some space. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to have fun. I can't poke you anymore. Yeah, this is Blake when I'm making dinner. Hi, how was your day? What did you do? Sorry for trying to communicate. <laughs> and, and it's great. It's awesome. But I'm like, oh, this is what happens to me all day long with the 11-year-olds. I need a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the only, the only two things that I would suggest, not that I have really a whole lot of advice from only being married a few years is if you're planning on getting married, I would say you, should, you would much rather mess up the day of your wedding in how you planned it than the person you're getting married to. I think COVID's done a pretty good job of forcing people to kind of look at reality and what they can afford and what a wedding should look like and not making it more than it truly is. Um, a lot of people kind of make it out to be the best day of their lives. And I mean, our wedding was great, but I would much rather have made a wrong decision on where our wedding was, et cetera, et cetera, than who I'm married to. Like, I'm with her every day. My wedding was, it's one memory of tons of great memories we've had. So I would much rather have messed that up than who I'm married to. So I think that's something, don't get caught up in, it's gonna be the perfect pictures, we gotta have the best, groomsmen and bridesmaids, blah, blah, blah. I'd say, who cares? Um, and then the other thing that I think we're, Rachel kind of mentioned it, is just examining your expectations in life. And I think this is for any stage of life that you're at, um, is we, we want kids. We have not been able to have kids and we don't know if we will um, and what that is gonna look like, but just kind of recognizing okay, is this expectation or this, is this desire from God, y yes or no? You can kind of figure that out quickly. And then is this um, an expectation that I'm putting my hope in? Is my hope in what I desire or is my hope in the God who fulfills what I need? So I think that's something that we're still kind of wrestling with. Um, but looking at our expectations of life and asking, is this truly what God has for us? And then wrestling with the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So. Very good. Well, thank you, Blake and Rach. Thank you for... It's scary enough to be up here, let alone opening up about some very raw issues. And uh, thank you for being open. Um, it's profitable. I know I've... I'm gaining profit out of this, and I'm sure there's a little bit of something for everyone here tonight. So remember to come back next week, 6.30 again. We'll talk about communication and conflict next week, so that should be a fun night too. So remember you're loved. <laughs>